We'll start with my title, God is Holy. It's very original and inspiring sermon title. No, just joking. It's like, but what do you do? This is the holiness of God. It is in itself an amazing topic. But I do wonder, if you've been around church for a while, holy is one of those words that's like our Christian, uh, like a Christian buzzword. It's kind of just so familiar it becomes fuzzy and nebulous. So I wonder if you think about it for a moment and I ask you, what is holiness or what does God being holy mean to you? How do you picture God in your mind as holy? I want you to picture it in your mind. Some kind of big, giant, aloof on a throne. What is that, what is that picture to you? Maybe it's so fuzzy, it's, there is no picture. It's just all static like an old TV channel that doesn't quite come in right. There are over 540 verses in the Bible that mention the word holy, and that's just in the English translation, and there's lots of synonyms that the Hebrew and Greek words are translated. For example, in the NIV, uh, we often see it translated um, sacred. I read through all 544 of them, scanned and sometimes detail in the context to see what was going on. And wow, there's a lot. In fact, I feel bad because my notes are, I did a lot of cutting yesterday. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff I took out, but it still feels like there's way too much here. And I apologize for that. But the holiness of God is a huge topic. I mean, you could send a series, there's books written on the holiness of God. And I've studied and and depth passages that talk about God's holiness, and yet there is still more to learn. This study has been fascinating. There's one main truth that stood out to me I'd never seen before, ever, never made the connection. And I'm going to share that with you this morning, the, the, the result of that. And, and I'm going to leave out a lot of stuff about holiness, positional holiness and practical holiness. That's, that's a great topic, but it's, it's just I had to take it off the table. It's not going to fit. The main idea is this. One aspect of God's holiness is that God is deeply committed to joyful relationships. That's the main concept. You know, I'm going to try to drive home today. The main idea would be, could be stated this way. God's holiness should motivate us to pursue joyful relationships with God and others. I'll say it again. God's holiness should motivate us to pursue joyful relationships with God and others. That's not the immediate picture that came to my mind when I started, before I started this. God's holiness is God is separate. He is aloof. He is pure and righteous in a way that I cannot be. And, and the best I can do is be holy like he's holy and try to be good. I mean, that's probably how most of us would think of the topic of God's holy, and I need to be holy too. But this morning, my goal is to, we're going to pray, and then I'm going to lay out for you the result of my study, and that is that a three-step process in our study of God's holiness that we're going to look at holiness defined, really what does it mean? I do want to give some clarity to that, so that's not fuzzy. 
Um, and then God's holiness described. A dictionary doesn't do, de- do justice to describe for us God's holiness. So we'll go to the Old Testament and look at some descriptions. And then finally, God's holiness displayed. Um, in John 17, we have a beautiful interaction between God the Father and God the Son in prayer. And it just displays for us in a text that most commonly is not thought of, a, a beautiful illustration of God's holiness. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we come before you and we acknowledge we are woefully inadequate to plunge the depths of your holiness that's beyond our skill set in a 30, 40 minute time frame or 15 or 20 minute, it won't be that short, but we recognize that it's beyond the scope of what we have time to do today. But I do pray that as a result of being together and spending time in your word, as we go home and head into our week of work and responsibilities or for some of our children playing and, and trying to entertain themselves and stay out of mom's way, but as we go forward from here, that we would picture in our mind, have a better picture with color and clarity of who you are. And as a result of seeing your holiness, we would love you and desire to be in a more personal, deeper, closer relationship with you. And I know for some, some here this morning that that's a foreign concept a personal walk, a personal relationship with God. And I, but I pray that our time together would help us give some aid to that task. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Starting out with holiness defined. What, what does holiness even mean? Well, at its most basic meaning, holiness as a noun means set apart. Taking notes, that's your, the simple notes. Holiness means set apart. Uh, it can be a verb, it's the act of setting apart. It can be a noun, the state of being set apart. I brought with me two illustrations of holy objects because God is holy, but, you know, other things can be holy too. People could be holy. So I brought two holy cups. I'm going to use this one first. <clears throat> In our house, if you came and visited our home, and you was a first time visiting, you might get the holy dishes. It depends. If it's a Sunday or maybe, you know, a dinner, evening dinner meal, we often bring out the holy dishes. These are nice. They are real china. They're very hard to replace. They're expensive. And we keep them in a separate cabinet away from all the other dishes. They are set apart. And they only come out at Christmas and Thanksgiving and when we have guests. They are not, we do not get these out. They do not go in the dishwasher. They are hand washed. We are careful. I wrapped this in cloth and bringing it to church. I did not want to chip it or break it. This is a holy cup. It is set apart. It is not common. It is set apart for special purposes and use. Now, I also brought another holy cup My birthday was June, and my granddaughter, or my daughter and my grandson gave me, in my house, I am called Papa by my grandson, and this says Papa of the Year, 
and I am his papa, and this is my holy cup. It is set apart. I drink from this cup. I drink coffee most mornings from this cup. I have some water in here now, but this is my holy cup set apart for me. God is holy. He's set apart. Now, another aspect of what does it mean to be holy is it is to be set apart from something and set apart to something. There are a lot of cups in our house. This cup is set apart from all those other cups. It is in its own separate cabinet. It is away from the other cups. But it is set apart to something. It is set apart for the special occasions. Its purpose of being set apart is for us. Let me grab the other holy cup. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It is set apart for the occasions of special mealtimes and special people that we want to honor. So when we say God is set apart, well, set apart from that we get, right? He is different. He is set apart from his creation. There's nothing in creation that he has made that is exactly like God. Nobody else is like him. He is set apart from us. But what is he set apart to? You know, that's that's a thought I had never really spent much time considering. God is set apart from his creation... He is set apart to himself, the triune God, in relationship with himself. Let's look at a text. God is set apart, a perfect relationship with himself in the Trinitarian family. There are two Text, there are multiple texts of scripture that peek into the throne room of heaven. Much of the book of Revelation does that. But in Revelation as well, John records for us a text, um, as well as Isaiah, where around the throne room of heaven, there are four seraphim, special angelic beings, that are singing, it says, day and night, constantly, they're singing a song to the one who sits on the throne. <clears throat> we sang a tune, a variation of that song. I don't know what the tune is up there. <clears throat> but it starts out. <clears throat> excuse me. Let's try that one more time. It starts out like our hymn. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God. Almighty. But it continues on to say, who was and is and is to come. There are multiple attributes of God. We, we know what that means, right? God, what God is like, his attributes. Um, and that phrase, that's, that song, that chorus that they are singing over and over again, they are, they are praising God for his lordship, his authority. He's in charge. Nobody's in charge, but like God is in charge. He's in charge of all creation. They're praising him for his power. He is almighty. In the Old Testament, Isaiah text is, he is the king of the armies of heaven. That's a powerful army. And he is eternal. He's timeless. He's not a time lord, but he is the Lord of time. He is timeless. And he's holy. 
But notice what is different about the attribute of holiness in that list. First, it's at the front, which is an emphasis, but it's repeated three times. There's no other attribute of God that is repeated in Scripture three times besides holy. We never hear love, love, love. We know God is love. That's stated multiple times. We know that God is eternal. We know God is truth. There's a lot of attributes that describe and define who God is. But the holy is the only one that's described and repeated three times constantly before the throne of heaven. And why is that? For emphasis, surely, all scholars would agree on that. But I believe our hymn writer got it right. It's identifying an aspect of God's Trinitarian nature. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And all three of them are described in Scripture as being holy, the Spirit the most. They share that common characteristic, that attribute, and they share it among themselves in relationship. I believe that this text, this concept, this is new to me, was that the holiness of God is part of a description of the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. God is relational. God's holiness helps us understand that He is personal and a relational being. The Father has a perfect relationship with the Son. The Son has a perfect relationship with the Spirit. The Spirit has a perfect relationship with the Father. God has a perfect relationship with Himself. He is holy. I don't know about you. I don't have a perfect relationship with anybody. The closest is my wife, and she would be the first to tell you our relationship is not perfect. There are multiple things that, that prevent that from happening, and the least of which is that we're both sinners, and that just makes it right off the bat of an impossible reality. My, I'm not, I don't have a perfect relationship with any of my five children or my grandson. But you know what? I value relationships. I've, I value the friendships and the people that I have I, in my life. I don't feel like I'm great at it. I grew up in a military home. And my dad was an Air Force pilot, and we moved all over the country. And the longest we ever stayed anywhere was four years. Two to four years was pretty common. I got pretty good at getting to know people quickly, but it would take me a long, it was hard for me to, to really engage and bring them into my life, and they'd be a close friend because I knew I'm going to be leaving and saying goodbye. And that's painful. It's hard. And so there's always this distance of protecting my heart because I don't want to get too close because then I'll, they'll leave, or I'll leave and leave them behind. And that, that's not fun either. So God cares about relationships, and, and holiness is a way that helps us understand how God perfectly relates to himself. We aren't holy, not like he is. But what's amazing is he has invited us into relationship with him. He has invited us into the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. That family relationship is one that we've been invited into. Now, we, we aren't perfect, not in our nature and not in our character, which is the reason we need salvation. Jesus came, he died on the cross to pay for your sin and mine, and that enables us to be brought into the family, and now we are adopted, and, and we're in a new family if you know Jesus as your Savior, and guess what? It's not like your family growing up. I don't know if you had a great dad or an awful dad. The reality is that you have no dad like God the Father. He's a perfect dad. 
But the, the rules in the Clark family are very different than the rules in God's family. It, it, I mean, not very different. I try to match them as close as I can, but God's family rules of how relationships work are different. And so what I'd like to do is go to the Old Testament, and we're going to see God's holiness described. In ancient times, pagan deities were never trusted. They were only feared. They were holy. The people considered the gods as holy. The gods were impersonal and unknowable. People spent their time and their resources trying to placate or manipulate gods in order to get what they want and to keep themselves safe. In contrast, when God reached out to Moses and started to engage him in relationship, the very first time, remember the burning bush? The ground you're standing on is holy. Take your shoes off. God was present. And God invited Moses into a relationship with him. And then he invited the entire people group, the Israelite people, into a relationship with him. And that Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible, have a lot of rules and, and, and guidance as far as what does holiness and relationship with God, between God and his people Israel, what does that look like? And so I want to describe holiness by some of those rules. We're going to see how God kind of handles relationships. He, he gives us four requirements for a relationship. If you want to be, have a relationship in God's family, this is what God's relationship rules are. They are, they are the exhaustive list. They're, I just try to narrow it down. But, but the first is that holy relationship, uh, the, the holy relationships require a major relational commitment. Basically, one word, it's commitment. It's illustrated by marriage, a covenant relationship between God and God's people. And again, God initiated the relationship. He, he um, proposed. When I proposed to my wife, we had gone to the Broadway musical in Minneapolis of the Beauty and the Beast. It was the first version where they actually launched real fireworks inside the building, and it was really cool. And, and after we were all done, I, I got down, we let everybody leave, and I got down on one knee, and I, I asked her to be my wife, and she responded. She didn't just say yes. She started quoting Ruth to me and your people, and I was like, Wow, this is pretty amazing. But I proposed to her, and she accepted. She said, yes, I was so excited. God has proposed to us and says, I want you to be in my family. I sent my son to die for you so that you could be made holy and be brought into my family, separate from the rest of the world and its sin. You're a sinner, but I've cleansed you through the blood of Christ. I want you into my family. But it takes a commitment. It takes a commitment. And this commitment's going to show up. First, you're, we're going to share a home together. And guess what? When my, my wife married me, she came and lived with me. It was great. She came to my house. And we live together. This is what we see in the Old Testament. Holy relationships involve living in God's presence. After crossing the Red Sea, the people of Israel uh, sang a song. The, the Pharaoh's army was destroyed and they were drowned in the sea. And, and they sang in, in Exodus 15, 13, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed in your strength. You will guide them to your holy 
dwelling. What's a holy dwelling? It's God's house. It's where God is. It's where God is living. God eventually brought them to Mount Sinai, and he showed up, and man, was it a big deal. He started talking, and people started listening. It was scary. It is a big holy God, and, and, but he invited them to live with him. In love, God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. He, was, he led them out uh, and was leading them home. It's the first mention of people living with God or being in God's presence, living in God's presence. But this concept is seen throughout the Bible. We find terms like God's holy mountain. We saw, heard that in um, Psalm 99. That's basically the city of Jerusalem. The temple was there. God's presence was there. He lived in the city with everybody else in the city. That's his dwelling place. The term holy city, Jerusalem, holy temple. And New Testament after uh, salvation, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives. Our body becomes the temple of the Holy Ghost. It's very intimate. We're living together. The church collectively is Christ's holy bride, Ephesians 5. Living in community with God is ultimately what heaven and eternity will be like. I, I am very thankful for the family God has given me. We play games together. We live in community together. It'd be very hard for me to adjust to living by myself right now. That'd be really hard. Because I live in a community. We, we live and do life together. And, and for all eternity, we're going to live in a community with God as our Father and brothers and sisters, many of you right here, I pray and trust, will be living together for all eternity. We live in a home together. Secondly, we share not only a home, we share our resources. Leviticus 27.30 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Basically, God says, listen, in this covenant, this proposal, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God. I am going to bless you you keep the covenant relationship. I'm going to provide for you. Your crops aren't going to fail. I'm going to protect you from invading armies. I will, you're, you're my people, and I'm going to take care of you. You will be great. I will take care of you. But as I give to you, I want you to give to me. Because part of what relationships look like in God's family is we give to each other. We're not stingy. We don't hoard our resources. We share. And to help the God's people in Israel figure that out, he gave them a rule, a requirement to be in relationship with me. You need to, you need to give 10% of your resources and your crops. We don't, I don't believe that mandate holds for us today, but the principle still does. In relationship with God's family, we give, we give to each other. We share. We give to God at church. We give to one another as we have resources and there's a need. That's part of what living in relationship with God, a holy relationship looks like. We give. We share our resources. Third, we share our time. God set apart one day in seven to be holy. The day God rested from his work of creation, Genesis 2-3 says, Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. 
So God said, right at the beginning of time, I'm going to set aside one of these days, the day that I stopped working and I rested, day seven, and that's a holy day. Out of all seven days of the week, he picked one and said, that one's holy. Out of all the cups in the cupboard, of all the coffee mugs on our rack, this is the holy mug for me. God said, day seven is day that is holy to me. Because I rested on that day. When God established the relationship, covenant relationship with Israel, he said, listen, that holy day, day seven, I want you to treat it special. I want you to not work on day seven. I want you to worship on day seven. You get together with the other people of Israel, other of my people, and I want you to, to worship me, no work. After you're done worshiping me, go home and play Yahtzee together. Go home and play Scrabble. Go home and, and, and do something together. Be a family. Be in relationship. Enjoy relationship. Because guess what? Working together is relationship building. I have some great co-workers and we work together and I know them and I appreciate them. I enjoy them. But it's very different from playing together and worshiping God together. See, God cares about your time. It's all his. Every moment, every day, it all belongs to him. Every day of the week belongs to him. But he asks of us in the Old Testament time to take one day and set it aside and not do our normal routine, not work. As Christians, we've kind of transitioned away from day seven, Saturday, to day one. And that's primarily because Christ rose from the dead. And we celebrate that every Sunday, the resurrection. God says... The relationship, holy relationships require us to share our time. Holy relationships require a major relational commitment. We share our home, we share our resources, we share our time. But secondly, the second requirement, holy relationships require joyful celebration and feasting together. I love this passage. Exodus 12, 16 says, On the first day, hold a sacred assembly. This is a sacred assembly. And another one on the seventh day, do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That's all you may do. God eventually established three annual holidays. And guess what? Those, they were holidays. July 4th. It's a, it's a holiday. You don't work on a holiday. And in fact, what do most of us do on a holiday? We get food, we go to the grocery store, we buy steaks, we buy something special, and we grill it, we cook it, we have a turkey, Thanksgiving. We enjoy a meal together, a special meal. We celebrate. God says, listen, holy relationships require joyful celebration. It's mandated. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals. The appointed festival of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. You know what I really enjoyed about three, four weeks ago was our church picnic. If you weren't able to go, you missed out. We'll get it next year because it's worth going to. I saw some people doing belly flops off the diving board. I went, oh, and was like, but they got back on and they did it right the next time. I was like, yay, good job. And, and, and I got to talk to people that I hadn't really talked to before and, and eat some great food. I just delighted in, I just, it. Was a, it was a wonderful day. You know what? Holy relationships, a holy God, that's a requirement. God's holiness is not this stodgy, 
no fun, you know, stuffy, elusive, exclusive, you know, separated from us. No, we've been invited into God's family. God's got the best family of all. His relationships are perfect. And they're full of joy and love and celebration. And God invites us to live that way. And he mandated it three times a year for Old Testament Israelites to celebrate. Third, holy relationships require absolute trust. In the very beginning, God has used food to test whether or not we trust him. In the garden, what did he say? What was the only test? You can eat from every tree of the garden. Any food in the garden is great for you to eat except this one. Don't touch it. Don't eat it, technically. And that concept of, of food as a test of our willingness to trust him has continued ever since. And right away in the beginning of this relationship between God and Old Testament Israel, he gives them food restrictions. Leviticus 11 is full of all the food that they cannot and they can eat. And, and guess what? In, in an agricultural society, you don't have good crops. Now you're, 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 you're potentially starving to death. And, and if the game is not available and you didn't have a good crops that year, and the only animal around is a pig, I guarantee you the Jews were thinking, maybe this is not such a bad idea to try pork tonight. God has restricted their food. Now they couldn't eat some things. And God was testing them. Will you trust me? Because guess what? I don't know about you, I like to eat. I like to eat a lot, and you can probably tell. I've been trying to stop, but it doesn't matter. I still get hungry, and I still eat every day. And God knows that we need to eat, right? You need to eat to live. Some of us live to eat, and that's, not, so that's a different problem. But we need to eat. That's, uh, food, we enjoy food. We enjoy good food. We need food. We need water. Well, guess what happened? God rescued and redeemed Egypt, his people out of Egypt, right? They crossed over the Red Sea. The army was defeated. And now they're in a wilderness. Now, guess what's not in a wilderness? McDonald's. It, they're almost everywhere, but they're not in the wilderness. And they get wandering, you know, traveling in this wilderness. And, and the food that they brought from Egypt ran out. The water that they brought in their canteens and their water jugs ran out. And all of a sudden, they start to panic. We don't have any food. We don't have any water. And they start complaining. They go to Moses and said, you, you brought us out here to die. And Moses goes to God. God, what do I do? They're not wrong. We don't have any food. It's a problem. And God's using food to, trust, to test them to see if they will trust him. And so we have a story in Exodus 16 where God says, I'm going I'm to provide you some food won't be Big Macs and French fries. It'll be quail, at least sometimes. And the daily staple is going to be manna. But I'm going to give you some rules about this food because I'm testing to see if you'll trust me. I'm going to send this food every morning. You're going to go out. The food will be there on the ground. 
you know, collect it and you can turn it into bread. Your imagination's the limit. Figure out how you want to cook it. I'm going to give you manna. You go and you get that food, but only take enough for meals for one day. And the next day, I'll send it again. And the next day, I'll send it again. But on the sixth day, I want you to get enough for two days because on day seven, I'm not going to send the food because that's the day of rest. No work. I want you to, to prepare for that day and enjoy family time. Enjoy worshiping me. No work on, on Saturday. So that was the plan. Now, did God's people, all of them trust God and follow the plan? Nope. Some of them said, well, the next day they go out, there's this food on the ground, and they start picking it up. <clears throat> they fill up their basket and say, oh, that should be enough. What if God doesn't send this more food tomorrow? Then I'm going to be hungry tomorrow. Let me grab another bag. And they start collecting and, and taking some more. They go home, they eat, they enjoy the meal for the day, but they, in the next morning they go to their second bag to get ready for breakfast to maybe not go out and get it right away. And that food was filled with maggots and it was disgusting, it was rotten, it was awful, it was unedible. I imagine some of those same people that on day six went out and collected their food. They got enough for two because... But day seven, they got up and they went out to look for some more. And it wasn't there. And on day seven, God got angry. He turned to Moses and said, How long will I put up with these people who are unholy and not trusting me to provide for them? And for 40 years, God taught his people that man shall not live by bread alone. God knows you need food. He knows you need water. But he also knows you need him more than you need food and more than you need water. You feel the need for food. We don't always feel the need for God. And so God often uses food. That's why fasting, he's trying to help us see, I am your source of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot get to the Father. You cannot have relationship in God's family outside of me. Jesus demonstrated that he, we, he trusted the Father. For 40 days, he went into the wilderness. Not 40 years, 40 days. And he did not have food. And yet on day 40, the 40th day, God provided for him. He sent his angels with food. Just picturing, we can trust God our Father to provide for our needs. And that's what a relationship in the Trinitarian family looks like. That's what a holy relationship looks like. We trust God. Absolutely. And utterly. God's holiness helps us understand that he is a personal and relational being. The Father has a perfect relationship with the Son, the Son with the Spirit, and the Spirit with the, with the Father. Do we trust him? Holy relationships require absolute trust. Holy relationships require Finally, faithfulness. Leviticus 21 through 8. 
The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death. How many kids do we have here? I see several. If you live back in this time, one of the deities, of the local deities, not God, the true God, was a god Molech. And those who worshipped the god Molech, this is how they did it. They built a metal statue that was an image of their god, and it was hollow on the inside. And they would build a fire in there. And the god, the deity, would have his hands out. It was a metal statue, like I said. The fire would heat up, and the hands would become glowing red hot. And then that god demanded that his worshipers would take their baby and put it in the red hot hands to kill it as sacrifice to God Molech. Lovely, huh? God said, no way. This is not how relationships work in my kingdom, in my family. You worship me and me alone. You do not worship these other, other gods. And so he says, if you worship these other gods, you are to be put to death. Because I will not tolerate that. The covenant relationship between God and Israel had the death penalties for several aspects of violations. And this was one of them. If you worship a pagan God and you give sacrifices to any other God but me, you should be put to death. God says, absolutely, you need to be faithful to me. And throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, it uses this picture of marriage that worshiping another God in this family relationship is like our family relationship in committing adultery. It is treating another man or woman like they're my husband or my wife. And God said, that is not acceptable. You be faithful. You be faithful to me. I commit to taking care of you and being faithful to you. I will never leave you or, or forsake you. I am committed to your well-being. And there may be times that it feels scary and your life may be upheaval and you're not sure what's going to happen. But I will never leave you. I will take care of you. You need to trust me. Even at times when it feels like something's not right, I will be there and I will provide for you and I will take care of you. Do not worship Molech. I am your God. Trust me. Now, that's the Old Testament. There's lots of other passages. We don't have time. I'm going to take us to a New Testament text. I invite you to turn there with me in the, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I try to give a glimpse, a description of holiness in the Old Testament to help us understand the relationship between God and his people Israel as an illustration of holiness for us. It is, it is how relationships in God's kingdom and God's family work. But now I want to turn to a text that we can see it in action between God the Father and God the Son. There's not a lot of passages in Scripture that do this. This is one of my favorite. I've spent a lot of time meditating on it, and I'm not going to preach through an entire chapter, I promise. I'm going to read it, and then very quickly, in fact, it'll be so fast, you probably won't be able to write them all down if you're taking notes. I'll just give you quick seven highlights of what I saw, and you may see something else, about how the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, and you'll see in this text, His children, 
us, our, how our relationship, how the holiness, the relationship between a holy God and his people, us, how, it's, how it looks in real life. All right? So here's the prayer. If you're there, John chapter 17, I'll read it with minimal comment and make some, you look for it, but this is what I want you to look for. What is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son look like? What are they doing? What are they saying? What, what does it look like? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. The glorify is a fancy word just means praise. Make a big deal out of him. You, you, you compliment, say good things about me, and I'm going to compliment and say great things about you. We're going to praise each other. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They are yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Talking primarily here about the disciples. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. I love this verse. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. There's a relational concept. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave thee. None of it has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled, talking about Judas. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. There is holiness separate from the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them. That's the verb form of holiness. Separate them. Make them set apart by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them... I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now Jesus prays for us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, 
there is a relational intimacy. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. In them, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Sound familiar? And to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. I look forward to hearing the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Seven quick observations. They praise and glorify each other a lot. I enjoy hearing my wife praise me. I know she enjoys hearing me praise her. They give each other, they give to each other, they share, they have mutual ownership. There's no selfishness, there's no withholding. They experience true oneness, true intimacy over and over. You see that concept. They experience full joy. They work with and for each other. They enjoy being with one another. They know and love each other intimately. You know, God's holiness guides and guards the relationship of God's families. The Bible uses two pictures to describe how we join God's family. Adoption as sons and daughters, John 12, 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons or the children of God. God has offered you, he desires for you to be in his family by receiving Christ's death on the cross for your sin. He also describes it through the picture of marriage. God has extended the invitation to join his family. Have you been adopted into Christ's family, into God the Father's family? If you have, now holiness is, is how the relationship works in this family. And that's foreign to our families. It's not our native love language. It's not how we function. Selfishness is what's the root of our heart. That's how we function. I want to get from you what will make me happy, not give to you. And so there's a lot of learning and relearning when it comes to relationship with God. So here's a question as we close practically and apply this text. Is there something unholy in your life that is causing a barrier in your relationship to God? Do you feel like God is distant, far away? Is there's not a joy in your time with him? Opening his word is, is dry. It's not meaningful. Your prayer time, you talk to God, doesn't feel like it's hitting, going past the ceiling. There can be many reasons for that, but one of them would, could be very simply, you, there, is, there is something unholy in, in your relationship. And it is a barrier. Unholy is, is like a barrier to the relationship. 
There's some unholy things that happen in my house. My wife does not like it if I leave dirty tissues around the house. That just drives her crazy. I try not to do that. I usually don't. She, there's other things she doesn't like. She told me not to say what they were, so I won't. <laughs> she, there are rules in my family because of my love for my wife that I know that if I violate those and I do unholy things, they will cause a barrier in the relationship. It will frustrate her. Are you frustrating the relationship with your God right now? Is there something? For me, you know what it was? As I was preparing for this and praying, and God, what is it? You know what it was? It was a game I was playing in the morning on my iPad. I would get up in the morning, and I would go through my routine, and I would get drawn and sucked into the game, and all of a sudden it was time to go to work, and I, didn't have, and I had not read my Bible. It's not a bad game. It's not evil. But you know what? It's an unholy game because it was distracting me from my holy God. And I, I asked God to forgive me, and I tried to change my morning routine. I don't play the game in the morning. I wait till after I've had time with God, and I play it in the evening. I had to change because I value this relationship, and I recognize that there's some rules about how the relationship with the holy God works. He has a priority on my time. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We recognize that you are a holy God. For some of us, that's been a little fuzzy of what that means. I pray that today we recognize ultimate holiness is set aside, set apart. And you are a holy God. You are separate from your creation, but you have invited us into relationship. As we are holy and we, we adhere to the rules of your family, and we live a holy life, we enjoy the fruits of a perfect relationship. Oh, I look so forward to heaven. Eternity when sin has been eradicated and that barriers, those barriers are gone. Until then, Father, I pray that you would help me. Help me to recognize where I am allowing unholy behavior into my relationship as a barrier between you and me. And I pray for each one here this morning. Lord, A, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't really know you, they, they are not part of your family, I pray that today they would accept Christ, his sacrifice on their behalf. But for the majority of people here, Lord, help them to grow. Help them to to understand the dynamics of holiness in their own life so that they may be holy as you are holy and enjoy barrier-free communication and relationship with you. I trust your spirit to guide and, and to apply that truth in each heart as you see fit. May you do your work. In Christ's name we pray.